Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern and I am joined this week by the old staple Tim McIntosh and our new partner in crime here on the show, Heidi White. Angelina Stanford, our normal partner in crime, is in Montana uh, doing some consulting work and because Montana is still the Old West, I'm going to assume that's why there's not Wi-Fi there. I assume she's living (laughs) in a shanty in a camp where they're still building railroads and she's doing literature training with the men who are doing the railroad grade. So that's my image from it. So think like the Little House in the Prairie books where Laura's off in the wilderness, like the Washington guys make the railroad. That's what I assume Angelina's doing right now. So she couldn't be with us for this show. So Tim and Heidi and I will be holding down the fort as we talk about Tennessee Williams' play at the Glass Menagerie. But first, uh, Heidi, Tim, how's it going? So good. It's so great. It's summertime. I got time to read. Your husband's in Russia. That's right. The World Cup. Things. So I'm holding down the fort. Are your kids uh, back from summer camp yet? They are back from summer camp. Yes. So I'm going to be Amanda Wingfield and just arrange their life for them in a diabolical oh manner. So everything's going great over here <laughs> in my house. <laughs> this is, you know, it's a really interesting play to read. Like, well, I'll bring this up in a second. Tim, uh-huh. how's it going for you? How, what's, what's going on with your life? David, I, have, I think I've mentioned this on the show before. I have now settled into my summer program, which I kind of designed my whole life so that I would arrive at this point and I would just... <laughs> the last 40 plus years or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everything culminates with this. No, seriously, like the last year was all building toward me having enough liquid you know, savings that I could... Mm just write for three months. And I'm right in the middle of that. And you guys, that makes me happy. Oh, it I makes me that. really happy. I, I was reading a I'm biography jealous. of uh, Woodrow Wilson, you know, like, okay. The president, the so president wait, of, wait, hold on. Go Is ahead. that your whole life has been building to your reading of biography of Woodrow Wilson? <laughs> that, were you burying the lead there or what? <laughs> are you gonna write a musical I will is say, there, are we gonna have a Woodrow goal. Wilson musical <laughs> there it's is an unusual a, goal but I support it's it it's an unusual goal there actually I was reading it because I'm interested in writing a play and I'm not gonna say what it's about but it relates directly to Woodrow Wilson's life but only when I get a little bit deeper into it because you know like when you start writing a play you're like I don't know if this is gonna work and it takes a long time to know if it's gonna work but anyway he was, you know, when he was president, he would say over and over how much he wished that he could just kind of go back to his life before he was even president of Princeton and just kind of live the life of letters. That's what he really wanted mm-hmm. to do. He, I mean, you know, I think he enjoyed being president, but yeah, oh, it, it literally, I, it killed him being president. 
he ended up having a stroke two years into his second term. Yeah. And, and I, I'm sure that it had a lot to do with the exor the crazy strain of life after, during and after world war one. That's was totally it, irrelevant to what we're talking about. Was it Coolidge <laughs> who took over for him? Um, no, he, he was not, he finished his term. They hid it from everybody. Oh, he finished his term okay. in half. Yeah, okay. okay. Yeah. That's a yeah. great, that sounds like, um, that would never happen now. <laughs> no way. Right. Right. Um, well, so you are, you're hanging out there in your writer's shed in the Pacific Northwest, reading biographies of presidents who have strokes um, Can we and... workshop that word shed a little bit? Maybe I'm thinking more like maybe Angelina is in a shed in Montana right now. I prefer to think of She's in a shanty. A shanty. This is more of a cottage. Ah, okay. Or a All right. cabin. Yeah, well. Has, is it though, it has, or is this just what you the romantic version that you're thinking of it as? <laughs> I can get my water from a clean trough just outside. <laughs> and I have... You have a horse tied up to the hitching post. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah, we're with you. We can, we can visualize it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Do you have, have you, paid the, have you paid the light bill on it? Do you have electricity? That's an important oh, question. Nice. It's relevant. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Very nice, David. <laughs> nice segue of, to our book. We That's are right. here to discuss Tennessee Williams, the glass menagerie. Um, is that how you guys say that word? I was thinking about this. No, I, it's not. No. I definitely say menagerie, but I am. Your way sounds a lot more fancy. <laughs> I get told that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> that I'm a fancy talker. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tim, how do you say it? Glass menagerie. Menagerie. Mm-hmm. I, so I was trying to figure out why. I said it that way and I've got uh-huh. no answer for it, but I remember as a kid, you're so fancy. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember as a kid hearing about that play and feeling like the word was weird. And I yeah. don't know if that particular person said menagerie as opposed to menagerie. And mm-hmm. maybe also it's because my mom's Canadian. And so there's something oh. the way the words are pronounced. We're going to go with that. I'm fancy though. Um, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of fancy, I do need to say a quick word from our friends over at Augustine College who, if you have been listening to uh, the last few weeks of this podcast, you know that they're making the Close Reads podcast possible um, throughout some of these last few weeks and here into June. If you are looking for a once in a lifetime opportunity to study in a Christian classical liberal arts program nestled in the beautiful mountains of Blacksburg, Virginia, then the Augustine College's uh, program in the United States, it's their first class of Augustine College in the U.S. might be a good option for you. There are scholarships available for early applicants. So if you are interested in this program, and I highly recommend you check them out, you can head over to truthisbeautiful.org. And again, that's truthisbeautiful.org. Augustine College is, as I said, it's a Christian classical liberal arts program that you, you, I think you can do one year or two years. Okay, I don't know the exact details on that, but because I don't know how it's different from the Canadian version. Um, of Augustine College, but they've been at it for a while now. They've been great partners of ours. Um, they've spoken at our conferences and written on our website. And um, we are um, really excited about the work that they're doing. Um, I think that they're in Montreal. Um, that's where they're based. And so they're bringing, you know, they're bringing their, uh, their um, truth that is beautiful south of the border over to Virginia. And um, this is a great opportunity if you have a student or um, or or class or 
or you yourself want to um, dive into the classical liberal arts um, curriculum a little bit deeper. So again, that's truthisbeautiful.org and thanks to their, uh, their staff and, and their, uh, their team for making Close Reads possible. We, we are really grateful to be partnering with them. Okay, the glass menage. Now I'm going to... Now I'm going to be thinking thinking about it all the time. (laughs) TGM, let's call it TGM. Uh, Tim, um, we have not done a lot of drama on Close Reads, and we have not done any drama that I can remember that wasn't Shakespeare. Have we? I don't think so. I I don't think so either. Some listener will probably have come up with something that that was um, some, some episode we did where there was another play or short play or something. Yeah. Um, but you, you are a playwright. And I th- that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do a play like this, um, because I think you have some unique uh, perspectives and wisdom and experience that can, you know, provide some really useful context for, for reading a play. And so one of the things I was thinking about, and uh, Heidi, I'm going to give Tim the floor here for a second. So bear with, bear with me, bear with Tim. Um, <laughs> what are, you know, I was thinking about how, the just there's you know the limitations of the form are very different you know you're still telling a yeah. story just like you would in a novel or a short story um or or even in like an episode of tv or something um but but the limitations are also unique um the formal structures are unique and thus some of the challenges are unique and i was yeah. wondering if you could talk a little bit about um what are some of those unique challenges to playwriting um, and when you're thinking about a play, what are some of the goals that you're trying to get across? I mean, certainly, I assume some of them are the same as they would be in a novel. Um, but in what ways is playwriting different or unique to novel writing or, or other forms of, of what well, we'll just, for the sake of, I hate the word, but we'll call it creative writing. Yeah. The first thing for me is who the audience is. I mean... Mm-hmm you're writing the playwright is writing not really to directly to the audience that's going to see the play he's not even really writing to close readers who are going to eventually read the glass menagerie they're the playwrights writing for directors and actors first and foremost which Hmm. um that's a peculiar thing You, you, you know like you're you're writing to people so that they have enough enough of a story and enough of their characters so that they can envision what the play would look like, like what they would feel like being mm-hmm. in this role, what it would feel like to direct these characters, but not mm-hmm. so much direction that you kind of bind their creativity because every production is a unique production yeah and there is no authoritative production you know just we talked about we've talked about hamlet a lot on the show and you guys were just part of a big was it a full weekend discussing hamlet Mm -hmm. yeah we there is no authoritative production of hamlet not even shakespeare's production of hamlet was the authoritative version Mm -hmm. um there are some that are really memorable that are some that, that there's a famous one. Um, John Gilgood directed a famous one in the early sixties. Those performed in street clothes. Um, and I suspect that, you know, there's probably one or two productions of the glass menagerie that are thought of as just, wow, they were really, really special. The cast really came together. 
the production values were really high. They had a great director, you know. Um, but all that to say, it is very different, David, that you're not writing directly author to reader. Mm-hmm. You're writing for kind of a middle stage. You know, I was um, I was thinking about that a lot when I was reading it this time because I remember like when I was in college, I spent a lot of time studying short story writing and, and yeah. studying the novel in particular. And like, what are the formal elements of a novel? What makes a good novel? Um, how do you build a novel? You know, how do you take the elements and how do you build a, a novel that has, um, that is uniform and novels deal so much more in, well, in short stories as well, maybe even more than the novel deal in like subtleties, right? Um, dealing like, what is the point at which you say you've said too much is a big uh-huh. question for a novel writer. And that's because you're trying to provide for, you're trying to provide it um, for the reader's imagination, you know, enough for them to get what they need and to be able to understand the scene, but also you need them to interpret it on their own. Um, mm-hmm. And so what when, and so sometimes when I think people who are used to reading novels read um, a, a play or even a screenplay, it feels like you're being sh- uh, things that you're used to not being given, you're being given. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little yeah. bit disorienting, I think. But as I've been studying in the last year or so, a lot more about screenwriting and you know making some attempts at it and things like that, um, I notice I've been noticing that like you, it's a different sort of muscle memory almost as the writer. Like there's a different set of mm-hmm. skills that you're trying to get across, and as you said, it's a different way of interacting with your audience because you're you're trying to provide something for the audience to or for the performers to give to the audience. So the subtlety yeah. has to be transmitted not by the writer, not by the storyteller, but by the performer and the director. Yeah. So you're not you're trying to give them something to be subtle with, not provide the subtlety. I mean, there's still subtleties in the story, and I, maybe that's the wrong word. But does what I'm saying make sense? Yeah, that's what that's what I mean by you're you're providing um, liberality to the actors and to the director. You're you're kind of that's what's, I mean, I think part of the reason I like writing plays so much is that it's so hard. It is the hardest thing to write. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's just this, this very delicate line. And I think Tennessee Williams strikes it really, really well, even though I hope we can talk about um, the stage directions a little bit. They're a little bit for me, <laughs> a little overwrought like that. You know, three, four pages describing what the lighting and the stage yeah, yeah, yeah. is going to be like. I, like, I, I do want to talk about that. Yeah. Um, but I think he does a wonderful job of giving real freedom to his actors and to his directors. But yet the story, every time you see the glass menagerie, it's the same story. You know, these characters, mm. you know, he is that really wonderful kind of in between place. Mm. Mm. Um, Heidi, I want to ask him one more question and then I, I do. Yeah, I promise please. I've got questions for you. I just kind of want to, <laughs> this is the preparation stage. We'll call it that. I just want to make sure. <laughs> I'm um, fascinated. Please I'm not Tim, ignoring continue you. talking. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about goals. Hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. So Tim, when you're writing a play, what are, are you thinking about, what are the goals you're thinking about trying to get across? Um, or even like when you're writing a scene, or you know, cause I think there's two different parts. There's like the breaking of the scene, I assume. And then there's the actually writing the dialogue of the scene. Yeah. Um, and so when you're doing that, what is your goal? And are you thinking, are, is that, are you also thinking there about when you're breaking story, are you thinking about the performers? Are you thinking about the ultimate audience? 
which one of those are you thinking about as your oh. story? Like, what's the goal for the scene? Is the goal to is the goal purely to provide a canvas for the actor, or is the goal to elicit some kind of emotion or response from the person sitting in the audience by the lines you write, by the stories you break? I think it's the latter. I think it's to elicit an emotional response from the audience. Um, and you're kind of forming a partnership with your imagined actor. You don't even really have an actor yet most times. So you're right, forming right, a partnership right. with your imagined actor. And I think the goal, this is going to be, um, I, I think this might be true of novels also, but for me, the ultimate goal is to establish the truth of the theme or the premise of the play through opposing values and conflict. And those opposing values are almost, I can't think of an exception, articulated through um, opposing characters. So in this case, um, mm -hmm. it would be Tom is one, he's one of the values, his mother is one of the other values. And it seems to me like the whole play is being fought out over the terrain and that terrain is Laura. So then more than other kinds of storytelling in playwriting, characters represent, are more representative of, of something and that you're, you know, pitting ideas or what was the word you used? Values that you're Values. against each other. Would you say that? Whereas well, like in a novel, you're not trying to create characters that are representative of something so much. I mean, you do, but maybe less. Well, see, I don't know. See, I think, I think that a novel does do that. I want to be careful because I'm not, I'm not saying that a character is like the embodiment of a certain set of values. That would be an Ayn Rand novel. And those are typically <laughs> very bad. Gar those garbage. Are, those are yeah. they're bad. <laughs> However, I mean, I can say someone like Flannery O'Connor, I do think that her characters represent a certain kind of um, stance in the world. But mm -hmm. I think the reason that she's so extraordinary as a writer is that they're characters first the right. values yeah. that they embody mm -hmm. manifest themselves in real life persons mm -hmm. yeah they incarnate they're incarnate incarnated yeah if i can borrow the term all right i'm gonna flip this over to heidi for a second heidi i'm curious what what is your um experience with plays do did you act in high school have you read many plays just did, have you ever written mm -hmm. a play I've never written a play. Uh, I am, uh, no, I don't have a comprehensive background in the theater by any means at all. So this, I'm so fascinated by the discussion between the two of you. And this is what I really wanted to dig into as we approach this story and this play is that uh, I think on this conversation between the three of us, we not only do we each represent, you know, as Tim brought up in terms of embodying a certain perspective on the world, um, that not only in approaching a play do we talk about different ways of writing, but also different ways of reading. And mm -hmm. as I have approached this play, I've been thinking so much about this. I keep, I've been texting, Tim and I have been texting about this over the past week because I'm so fascinated by the difference between approaching this work as a playwright and an actor, 
-hmm. versus on the other side where I approach the work, which tends to be from a very literary perspective. I read yeah, this yeah. like a book. Yeah. Do so you I'm find, looking, yeah. can, I, can I ask you a quite very specific yeah. question about that? I don't mm -hmm. mean to interrupt. No, um, you're fine. Do you, do you find that when you read it from a literary perspective that mm -hmm. you are, that it's disorienting or that do you find that you are asking questions of it that are unfair? Sure. Or, or I, think it, I, I think that's a really good question, an important question. And that's why I wanted to have the conversation on the air was, is what am I missing because I'm reading it from a literary perspective? Am mm. I reading it wrong? And I have air quotes, which you can't see. <laughs> but, <laughs> so imagine air quotes. So I, am I reading it wrong or am I noticing things that the average reader wouldn't necessarily notice they're important? that belong within a conversation about the play. Whereas David, I think you read like a craftsman, very much like a mm. writer. You, you're looking for craft and structure, form, word choices, why a play versus yeah. a short story, things like that. Whereas Tim, you're going for, what would this entire experience be like, right? You're paying attention yeah. to set design and stage directions. You know how important stage directions are for telling the story in a way that I, I may not pay as much attention to that. And I'm looking for symbols and uh, images and motifs and connections with other works, things like that. And all yeah. of those are right. But yeah. as we read it differently, you know, those kind of, com that belongs in a conversation. Yeah. Tim, does it, does it um, bother you or make you anxious at the idea of someone reading a play <laughs> like, like, liter like from a literary perspective in that way? No, no. And I was, as Heidi was talking, I was thinking, well, <laughs> I do. I, I read, I read plays um, as if I'm going to direct them or act in them. Uh, and then yeah, upon the that. second read, I, I think I read it more like Heidi reads it. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I think, and I think a good, Again, I'm like putting myself in the shoes of a director. I think a good director has to read both ways because the director is not just working with the actors, but mm -hmm. the yeah. building of the actual physical space of the stage falls to the director's vision. The, the yeah. director tells the carpenter, no, I want this beam here and I want the moon to rise over there. And those to me are very, very literary thematic elements. Huh. Um, and I can imagine that some directors might begin where Heidi begins. Hmm. You begin with the thematic element and then you step backwards and then you start thinking about the, you know, the particular actors that are going to instantiate this role or, or how these lines are going to be delivered or something like that. I'm just, I, I read director, actor first, theme second. Huh. I think they're both vital. Sure. Yes. Hmm. Hmm. So Heidi, did you, I, you guys will need, I was going to say, I, I just need to give this warning. I love this place so huh. much. <laughs> I love this place so much. And I am very excited that we are reading a play other than Shakespeare for the first time. So you guys might need to kind of like clap me up a little bit because I might be a little bit <laughs> I well, feel myself like, like reel it in dude reel it in 
<laughs> you know, well, I want to learn to read more like that. I That's why I've been texting you. Hey, this is so interesting to me. How does a playwright think about this? Whatever. I, I, I want to grow in that. So feel free to just fire away, Tim. Okay. Yeah. Well, Heidi, um, I'm, so Tim obviously loves the play. What uh-huh. was your, I don't know, it's the age old question, right? I feel stupid asking it all the time. But what was your first <laughs> experience with this play? I think you told me you read it what, on, the, on the airplane home from North Carolina. Uh-huh. Yes, I did. I read it twice, actually, um, on that. And then I watched a couple of different versions on YouTube, uh, film versions. Uh, and I, yes, I, I loved it. I think it's perfectly crafted. Uh, I, I think the characters are wonderful. I, yeah, I, I really, I've never read this before. I, I had heard about it, but only the way you hear about, you know, great plays of the 20th century in like a list. Do you know what I mean? So I knew nothing about it approaching it. And, uh, as, as I, as I began, I was already swept in by Tom's monologue on the theater from the very beginning. I loved that, mm-hmm. that when he just tells us, you know, and you always hear when you're uh, to show, not tell, yeah. right? But I loved that. I thought it worked brilliantly for this play. He told everything. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and it works. It's it beautiful. does work. So I did read it like a story, and then I realized I I need to grow in this way. Now the thing about performance, though, is that actor and Tim, I want to hear your perspective on this. Mm-hmm. Actors have to pick a lane in a different way than a reader does, right? So, for example, yeah. the character of the mother, and you and I were were talking about this yeah. this week, that in one of the performances I watched with Catherine Hepburn playing the mother, I didn't love her as the mother because Mm -hmm. I thought she was too straightforward. She didn't have, she was just, I had pictured Amanda Wingfield being very much a manipulator. Yeah. And here comes Catherine Hepburn just playing this in this very straightforward way. Do you, and do you by straightforward, do you mean panicked and afraid? Okay. She means everything she says. Have you seen it, David? I haven't. I haven't. So, okay. It's good. But that, and then I thought so much about that. Then I had this like meta thought, you know, I'm like, oh, I don't like this being played this way, but that's how theater is. Performers make choices in the way they perform, which interferes in many ways with the way the audience interprets, right? Mm -hmm. So that- Is mm -hmm. that a strength? Yeah. Go ahead, sorry. Is that a strength? Yeah, is that a strength of a play, Tim? And that way, for example, you know, if we're going back to Shakespeare, you can play Henry yeah. V as, um, you know, a conniving king, or you can play him as a good Christian king. And right. whereas when you're reading it, you kind of go back and forth between these interpretations and you hold them all in one place. You can't really right. do that when you're seeing it being performed. So how do you then, you know, is, do you see that as a strength of a play? I do see it as a strength. In fact, one of the things that they coach actors to do is it's almost, (laughs) it's so vital that the actor quote, make choices. Mm. It's like, they tell you that when you, when you do an audition, you know, Mm. you, you, you get, um, let's say a monologue and you're going to do an audition or you get what they, what they call a side, which is usually just a scene and you're, 
coldly reading the scene with some stranger that you've never met who's going out for a different role. And one of the things <laughs> they tell you is just make a choice, huh. you know, and what you're kind of hoping is that the choice that you make kind of coincides with what the director wants or the director sees your choice, wants you to do something different, asks you to do something different, and you can do that something different. Because And then you've just kind of showed your director, see how flexible I am, see what huh. great capacity I have. As a, so I, huh. you're exactly right. Making a choice. And I think what makes a great play, and when I say a great play, I mean a great production, hmm. is when the actors make those choices and they create this world through those choices that they make and through the director kind of choosing them because of the choices that they make. Um, and they all sort of coalesce and you forget you're in the theater and you mm -hmm. feel like you're, you know, in the Wingfield's living room for two hours. That's back when it's just magical. Huh. But you're exactly right, Heidi. Those actors make strong choices. And, um, Heidi and I were talking about what's the name of the actress that plays Laura in the um, John Malkovich version. She was uh, Karen, Karen Allen. Allen. Yeah. yeah, she was Indiana Jones' love yeah. interest in Raiders of the Lost. That's Art. who she yeah. was. Yes, I was trying to figure that out. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so I love Indiana Jones, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And mm -hmm. I think she is so terrific in that movie. She's just like, you got so much energy and spunk and she's a fighter. And now if you want to see an actor who has a range, watch the glass menagerie with her. And it, it is, it, it's hard for me to believe it's even the same person. She is so distinctly different. And she, I think she made such a powerful choice by being so small in, uh -huh. in glass menagerie. Mm. Yeah. Right. I was going to ask, you know, well, I guess I was going to say one of the things we could could do is just compare performances. And that might actually be something worth uh, touching on a little bit next week mm. when we answer some questions. Yeah. Then we can uh. have a chance to watch them or think about them, you know, in, in that way. I want to talk a little bit more about some of the specific things that Tennessee Williams is doing here and like what yeah. makes this play lasting. So I'm curious, I guess, from you, Tim, um, what is, why do you believe that this play has been such a staple of american theater for going on i mean going on 100 years almost i mean not quite but we're getting there um yeah. it was, what the is it the 30s was that when it was written i i yeah at, well 44 44 was when it premiered in chicago so i but guess didn't not. he write it didn't he start writing it in the late 30s uh, yeah so i think so i think it just premiered in 44 so okay but we'll say we'll say what 75 years or so i think that's still a, that's still yeah. a good long time <laughs> in a, yeah. like a quarter of the life of our whole country so um what um what makes this play um, last? Like what makes it such a staple and such a, you know, everybody teaches it, you know? Um, yeah. Tennessee Williams himself is one of the kind of preeminent American writers of any kind. Um, so, <laughs> Graham just walked in and brought me the new close reads mugs. Those are nice. Oh yay! Nice. Are they different than the ones that we have. They are brand new. I've never, I haven't seen these yet. Brand new mugs. Like a different design. Well, it looks like a yeah, a little bit different design, different colors. Okay, they're they're nice. Limited edition. Graham says these wow. are nice. So very fancy. Um, very. I'm gonna have to bring that up again at the end of the show. Mm -hmm. But um, <laughs> I have no idea what I was talking about. Anyway, why is this play lasted, Tim? Why is the play so good? <laughs> uh, 
I guess that's a different question in some ways. That so, is a different question. <laughs> so I want to start, I guess I want to start with why has it lasted? Because I think that can take us into why. Mm-hmm. Like what, what is the specific elements of the play that, that are so, so good? I, my answer might not be terribly satisfying. I think that the reason it's lasted so long is because it's just great. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it is so, everything about this play, I think he... Um, he writes with the utmost dexterity and subtlety and beauty. I just don't know. I can't imagine this play not working anywhere. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, it's going to be difficult for someone to put themselves, you know, someone from Southeast Asia to put themselves into an apartment in, in St. Louis. But it seems to me like it's so archetypal in so many different ways um what makes him different than other playwriters playwrights i think that he writes in uh the male voice and the female voice with almost Hmm. he i think he gets both of them expertly Hmm. um I, i saw an interview with his brother and his brother said that he wrote so well for males and females because he felt like he had those two personalities were in Tennessee. And like, sometimes he'd say, um, Tennessee was kind of in his feminine mode. And then other times he would be in his masculine mode and he'd say, you know, he just kind of switched back and forth, which probably is not the, like probably not a recipe for long-term health. And Tennessee (laughs) was not a super healthy guy, but, um, I think it did lend something with his ability to write in both voices. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and isn't it the first of its, maybe not the first of its kind, but the idea of the plastic theater, which I just did very basic research on from Wikipedia. Hmm. So I I don't know very much about it, but it was um, a, there was a new way. Am I right, Tim, that there's a new yes, way of yes, staging yes. a play that yeah. American theater took a shift with this play and its success? Is that true? That's true. Do you remember anything about what you read about the plastic theater? Um, well, I'm even just looking in the introduction that yeah. uh, um, says Williams demonstrated how he could synthesize music, poetry, and visual effects into compelling emotional situations. Mm-hmm. which I really love that, then structurally underpinning them with symbolic moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, even in reading it, I, I'm thinking of other plays with the the idea of the domestic warfare and the family tension that characterize mm-hmm. American plays, mm-hmm. uh, Long Day's Journey into Night, Death of a Salesman, uh, plays like that. This was, am I right in, is this first of kind of that genre? or maybe even just most successful or representative? That's a great question. My hunch without Wikipediaing is that <laughs> Long Day's Journey, I think Long Day's Journey into Night was probably written earlier, but mm-hmm. that's a Eugene O'Neill play. And it was, it was, I think it was performed posthumously. Mm. And I think it was, so I think it might've been performed after Glass Menagerie. Death of a Salesman, I want to say that's 50s, but it's also um, very much kind of like in the plastic theater mold, which is just as mm-hmm. you described. It's um, it's not just actors getting on there dressed, 
you know, strictly according to their historical moment. And, right. you know, I, I tend to think of the wooden, the, the acting of that kind of realistic, that kind of realistic acting is a little bit more wooden, hmm. um, huh. a little bit more performative than, than naturalistic. Hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know, Heidi. Maybe I think this might be the first of that kind of plastic theater. Can movie. you define that? What that means, plastic theater? I, I like Heidi, what, as opposed might to do a better that. job than me. Well, I got this from just from the introduction. The synthesis of music, poetry, and visual effects um, into compelling emotional situations. So why did they use, do you know why they used the term plastic? I don't. Tim, do you? I don't. I don't either. Um, I have to, I, I think it has something to do with the plastic arts, but I don't know. And it, it, okay. I don't think it's a reference to um, you know, the plastic of a bowl that you find in your kitchen. I think it's a, right. it's a different meaning of the word plastic. Right. Well, there's something we'll have to research for next week. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Homework. <laughs> <laughs> Are there, um, you were talking Tim about how he writes with, you, mean, you mentioned the voice, but you, you were talking about how he writes sort of with a lot of dexterity and so in such a beautiful way. Yeah. Are there, when you think about what makes good um, play writing, can you be more specific about what that means to write beautifully and dexterously and all that? Like, yeah. are you simply saying that I mean, you mentioned voice, so that's certainly one part of it. Like each character has sort of a um, a unique, fully realized, personal voice that is uh, consistent and unique with to that character. Um, yeah. But when you talk about beautiful writing in plays, is, I mean, is it simply writing a beautiful line? Is it the way you describe the moment in in the stage direction, or what is what what are you talking about when you when you say that more specifically? And could you? I don't know if you have any examples even from from the from the glass menagerie itself. Yeah, um, I think there are two things for me. One of them is that the actor clearly understands what the goal of the character is. The character is trying okay. to get something. What they're, so the what second, they're trying to get? Yeah, like, they're just they're all, and it's never stated by the playwright. You know, the player will, I mean, like, unless it's really in some, some so it's felt way, it's felt the actor, a good actor will read it and say, oh, I know mm. what Tom wants is um, like the salvation of his sister. And he also mm. wants freedom and he has to make a choice between those two things. So you and I were talking a little bit about, you know, I've, there's a few different screenplay things that I'm kind of experimenting yeah. with and some working on some scenes and just kind of mostly it's just like exercises for myself and who knows if I ever actually finish a full player screenplay or whatever. But you, you were telling me you were talking about that idea of make sure that your characters always have something that they're after. Yeah. So, so a good play though, what you're saying is doesn't, you know, the characters don't come right out and say what they want. Right. Right. But should, so should, and neither does the playwright then. So the, it makes sense that the character wouldn't. But so, so when the playwright is talking to the cast, for example, he's mm-hmm. not, he doesn't, he himself doesn't even say then this is what this character right. wants. It's something right. that the character wants that's made clear by their actions is what you're saying. Right. And I think typically what, what that a director though will say to the cast 
here is, you know, usually first rehearsal, here is what our play is about. Mm. And then it's just up to the actors to, I mean, to some degree, the actors shouldn't really care about that because the actors are pursuing what they want. They're coming in conflict with other characters who want something different. And this is the hard thing. This is the, the, such a hard thing to understand. The play, the play's theme emerges from the conflict, not from the words being stated overtly on the page. It's kind of like um, when hot and cold come together, there are these opposing forces mm -hmm. and the steam that rises is the theme of the play. Okay. Mm -hmm. huh. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Do you guys, do either of you have a scene in this play that particularly stands out to you that does, that just kind of shows his skill that we could, that we could look at? I think if we, um, I'd be really interested to spend 10 or 15 minutes in a specific scene going through, you know, why you think he made some of the choices or what, what works about a line or how you, even Tim, how you might direct it or something. I just think walking through that could be a fun exercise. Hmm. Heidi, does one jump to your mind? Well, I mean, there's only seven scenes and every yeah. one of them are so, so important. Uh, and we can even go through just, like two pages. I know, of scene. Perfectly, perfectly crafted. But I would say when Tom comes, which scene is this? Hold on. Um, when Tom comes home, I mean, I want, I, I think we have to talk about the unicorn horn. Yeah. Oh, point, yeah. Right. Like that, yeah. but that is the climax. You don't want to go straight to the climax of the story. Yeah. Uh, so I would say in the building to that moment, uh, in scene four, when he comes home drunk after mm -hmm. going to the movies and he has this uh, conversation with Laura about the magician. And yeah, that, in my book is on, yeah, it's the beginning of scene four. Yeah. And okay. Then why don't we read this together? Why don't I'll be, I'll do the narrator and then, yeah. Uh, Tim, you play Tom and Heidi, you just read Laura's lines and okay. we'll go through a couple pages of this. And I would mm -hmm. say, Tim, if there's a spot where you, I mean, we could do this however you want. We could read a couple pages and then go back. Or if there's a spot where you, you say, look, this is what he's doing here. Or either of you, if you want to stop and look at something, I'm perfectly fine with mm -hmm. that approach. Um, but then that might give us a chance to kind of dive yeah. into some of the specifics of the, of the craft of what he's doing here. Yeah. Um, so, good. okay. Scene four. So is this open? Direction? Yeah, I'll read the stage yeah. directions. Okay, okay. And then, okay, so yeah, I don't think there's, it's just the two of them. Mm -hmm. Yes. Or at right. least until. And how far do you want day. us to go? How far do you want us to go until Amanda shows up? Yeah, let's go until yeah, Amanda. I think, until then. Yeah, that's a scene within a scene. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I do have a question about that, Tim. When, when, he, when you're writing something like this, are you thinking, you know, this is, this is a very different sort of thing than Shakespeare. We've got the five acts. And you've got all these mm -hmm. scenes within it. You get these, this is just seven scenes and within them are these moments or sequences or whatever. When you're writing, do you write in terms of the full scene or do you write these smaller scenes within a scene, these sequences or whatever you want to put it? Say it again, David. So like he's got these longer scenes. If you were writing this, yeah. when you're working on a play, are you trying to write through a whole scene or are you working on these individual sort of moments or conversations within a scene? Oh, as opposed to like Shakespeare, where there's like they're longer and they've got all these acts and like structurally there's just yeah. a lot more going on. 
I've done it both ways. Okay. I was, that's just yeah. pure, pure curiosity there. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. But I, cause I think her, your high, your point, Heidi, about it being kind of a scene within a scene is, is, hmm. uh, uh, worth noting. Okay. Scene four, the interior of the apartment is dark. There's a faint light in the alley. A deep voiced bell in a church is tolling the hour of five. Tom appears at the top of the alley. After each solemn boom of the bell in the tower, he shakes a little noisemaker or rattle as if to express the tiny spasm of man in contrast to the sustained power and dignity of the Almighty. This and the unsteadiness of his advance make it evident that he has been drinking. As he climbs the few steps to the fire escape landing, light steals up inside. Laura appears in the front room in a nightdress. She notices that Tom's bed is empty. Tom fishes in his pockets for his door key, removing a motley assortment of articles in the, in the search, including a shower, a shower of movie ticket stubs and an empty bottle. At last, he finds the key. But just as he is about to insert it, it slips from his fingers. He strikes a match and crouches below the door. One crack and it falls through. Laura opens Tom. the door. Oh, sorry. Mm. Tom, Tom, what are you doing? Looking for a door key. Where have you been all this time? I've been to the movies. Okay, I'm going to pause, Heidi. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, like this is as a as a actor. Mm-hmm. This is a moment right here. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. Because Tom has been lying to his mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been lying to his mother about going out to see the movies at night, and everybody in the audience knows he's not going to see the movie, and his mother probably knows he's not going to see the movie. And his sister, Laura, probably knows he's not going to see the movies. So now on this line, mm-hmm. I have been to the movies. Yes. And Laura gets to say, and this all this time at the movies. So mm-hmm. is this a is this a little secret between the two of them? Like they're gonna mm-hmm. keep play acting? Or is Tom like lying to his sister? Like right. the actor that's gets to make a choice there. That's such a good question. I have the same question about this entire scene. And this is the first conversation between Laura and Tom. And any yes. kind, you know, as since I'm reading it like a book, you pay attention to the first time, right? So, yes. And it's so ambiguous, which goes to your, to the point we were making earlier that characters make choices or actors Absolutely. make choices. Right. So yeah, I, was- I would think she knows. She knows. But they're agreeing to keep this a secret because of yes. the big conflict that he's just had with his mother. And one of the things about this specific moment, like right where you stopped is for the audience anyway, it seems like you could play this in a way that there's a question of, are we about to have them, as you said, play acting? Are they about mm-hmm. to kind of continue a game or uh-huh, is there about uh-huh. to be a conflict? Or are we about to have Absolutely. a new conflict in the play? Because so far, Laura's just kind of been off in the corner in a way. And right. the conflict is between Amanda and Tom. But here, yes. the question is, okay, at this moment, the, the sort of tension is being ratcheted up and the question of what is our actual conflict is becoming more and more into focus. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. we know what one of the conflicts is, but is it being multiplied or is this going to help show alliances? Like, are, is it all, yes. is it one, everyone yeah. himself or are we beginning to create teams in a way? And this, right. like right where you stopped is where it starts to, that starts to sort of, that, that's the moment where right. we have to figure that okay, out. Okay, so Heidi, let me, can I ask Heidi this question? If yeah. you're playing Laura mm-hmm. um, and it's only your choice, mm-hmm. do you play this as you know the secret or you don't know the secret? That That's he's not a, really yeah. going to the movies? Right. I, 
that's such a good question. And I, I think I would be tempted to show this as a moment to play this, if I was an actress, to play this as a moment of solidarity between the siblings, like a little bit of a wink and nod. Right. Good. Because that's the way that I would want to play it also. I mean, right. That's why you like, have a director. You all the, like, <laughs> that's right. why you have a director. But honestly, I think that a good director lets that happen. Because huh. if the if the actors and Heidi and I, it sounds like we'd both be going the same direction, I would think Calm is trying to, he's forming an alliance or he's mm -hmm. playing on a in an alliance that's already there. Right. If the act, if the director sees that happening, I think usually the director is going to let it happen because the actors like, right. both want to go in that way. Right. But to the point that we were making earlier, the other option is that Laura displays nothing because we also know about Laura that she's the person very willing to be deceived into a dream world. Yeah. And mm. she is part of the glass menagerie, right? Yeah. So there's there would be support for playing her as absolutely fooled by this and will mm. because her brother is her I mean she has such a tiny world. Why not just believe what she's told, right? Mm -hmm. So there's there could be you could make the case either way, which was what makes it a brilliant play. Yeah. You could make the choice either way mm -hmm. and you still somehow have the same story and you still somehow have the same characters. Right. It's obviously not the exact same story and the exact same characters, but it's still, right. this is part of the, we, the reason I think the play is so powerful is that Tennessee Williams capacity is that he says to the actors, you can make this choice or you can make this choice either way. Mm -hmm. I'm still like telling you the glass menagerie. Yes. And, yes. You know, even if you want to say someone could nitpick and say, well, you, they're not exactly the same characters, as you said, not exactly the same story. <laughs> but what it does is it's, we still at least have the same like thematic essence that mm -hmm. regardless yeah. of how yeah. you make, what the decision that you make. And that's, I think, you know, that's where he's so gifted because you can make the choice. And even if you've, that means you're adjusting the character slightly. You're you're still getting at that core, that essence, that thing that is, like, yeah, that is like at the sort of heart of what this whole play is about, and that doesn't get yeah. ruined by making a choice. Right. Okay, it's not, so it's not even dependent on your choice, right? Can I continue? So the next thing that we go to. So now Heidi and I, let's just say we're the two actors here, and we've mm -hmm. made the choice that we. This is a compact that we both know yes. that Tom is not going into movies. So let's just like play it like right. that. So right. now these next lines from Tom are, I imagine them, if I'm playing Tom, I imagine that I am now going to kind of cast a scene to Laura that we both know is imaginative. We both know that it's a lie, but I know her propensity to kind of like, go into this dream world. I know that that makes her happy. So I'm going to cast kind of like a dream world picture mm -hmm. of what I did tonight. And mm -hmm. she's going to kind of go along with it because that's what she likes, you know? Right. Right. Hmm. Okay. So, okay. um, so you can kind of like maybe just, I'll just do, do some of this. Right. There was a very long program. There was a Garbo picture and uh, Mickey mouse and a travelogue. 
and a newsreel and a preview of coming attractions. And there was an organ solo and a collection for the milk fund, simultaneously, which ended up in a terrible fight between a fat lady and an usher. Did you have to stay through everything? Of course. Oh, and I forgot. There was this big stage show. The headliner on the stage show was Malvolio, the magician. He performed wonderful tricks, many of them, such as pouring water back and forth between pictures. First, it was turned to wine, and then it was turned to beer, and then it turned to whiskey. I know it was full. I know it was whiskey because it finally turned into, I know it was whiskey it finally turned into because he needed somebody to come up to the audience to help him, and I came up. Both shows. It was Kentucky Straight Bourbon, a very generous fellow, and he gave souvenirs. Now I pull a scarf from my back pocket. He gave me this. It's his magic scarf. You can have it, Laura. You wave it over a canary cage, and you get a bowl of goldfish. You wave it over the goldfish bowl, and they fly away, and they fly away canaries. But the wonderfulest trick of all was the coffin trick. We nailed him into a coffin, and he got out of the coffin without removing a single nail. There is a trick that would come in handy for me. Get me out of this two by four situation. Okay, I wanna stop there and point yeah. out two messianic images in this statement and in, in what you've just read. You have huh. the comparison uh, multiple times in the play of Amanda Wingfield to the Madonna. Mm -hmm. And in this speech, you have water being turned into wine and a resurrection. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that amazing? Just yeah. fantastic as he is trying to save her. But as he's doing it, he's indulging a lie, an illusion. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the undercurrent of the play. Does Do illusions, can they really save us? Mm. Is he a savior or is he a trickster? Yeah. yeah and I fine, think this is the line. speech. Yes. And this is the speech when we begin to ask this question about Tom. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's something meta there going on as well? Um, Tennessee Williams exploring the nature of creativity, of storytelling, of writing, yes. creating worlds and stuff. Yes. Because is mean, there illusion or is there something saving in it, so to speak, to borrow your word? Well, I mean, I don't know if he would right. think about it that way, but. Well, and he actually incarnates his illusion, right? He gives her the shimmering rainbow colored scarf. He, hmm. It isn't just words. He's trying to give her an artifact of this illusion. And I think that that's, that, that specific piece of stage direction, he pulls mm -hmm. from his back pocket a shimmering rainbow colored scarf. It's a simple sentence, um, mm -hmm. simple image, but it's the kind mm -hmm. of simplicity that great writers execute so purely, like so with so much talent um yes. even just the word shimmering right like it sounds yes. great the way he says it but also it like evokes the kind of image like it's glass or something it, it brings the her collection up again in our imaginations the idea of like right. the rainbow colored like like a um what are the little crystal things with the different colors when you shine when the light prisms. shines prisms yeah prisms, that's what it made yeah. me think of huh. um, and that's that's the kind of line i think that huh. you know, when tim was talking about how his talent that's that's of the kind of line that is evidence of what Tim was saying. Right. Hmm. I think what's so sad about the play is that it, it, it does ask this question about whether or not 
these illusions that uh, Tom and Laura and Amanda are all, they all are living under Mm -hmm. about whether uh, or not O'Connor too, Jim. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's in a different way, but yeah, even Jim, they're all living under these illusions. And when the illusions are broken, Mm -hmm. life is worse for everybody. And I, I, to juxtapose that with, again, Hamlet, the play within the play Uh is an illusion and it's an illusion that brings forth the truth. Hmm. The king self indicts when he sees the murder performed on stage. Hmm. This is kind of the opposite answer from Tennessee Williams, you know, and it's (laughs) both of those answers I think are true. Given the context, I see both of those answers can be are true. Like, you know, that the illusion is not is false. Here at the illusion, the illusion that the the illusion in the glass menagerie, um, when the illusion is broken, like lives collapse. Mm -hmm. In Hamlet, when the illusion uh, is performed, we get closer to the truth. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, I guess lives still collapse there, but but yeah, yeah, lives still collapse. I get your point. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's good. All right. We'll keep going. Okay. Yeah. All right. Tom. Shh. What are you shushing me for? You'll wake up mother. Goody, goody. Pay her back for all those rise and shines. He lies down groaning. (laughs) You know, it don't take much intelligence to get yourself into a nailed up coffin, Laura. But who in hell ever got himself out of one without removing one nail? He's now taking it seriously. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> as Brilliant. if an as if an answer the father's grinning photograph lights up the scene dims out immediately following the church bell is heard striking six at the sixth stroke the alarm goes off in amanda's room and after a few minutes we hear her calling rise and shine rise and shine laura go tell your brother to rise and shine all right so that's i guess the end then. yeah yeah um yeah what what do you make of the uh the the structural the church bell's kind of uh structurally marking the beginning and end Mm. of the scene within the scene Mm. um you mentioned he can be a little overwrought in his description tim at the beginning of scene four there he Mm -hmm. says after each solemn boom of the bell in the tower he shakes a little noisemaker a rattle as if to express the tiny spasm of man in contrast to the sustained power and dignity of the almighty (laughs) it's like tennessee williams is making his you know he like he was hanging out with faulkner or something right Um, do you what, what what do you make of that image bracketing this scene within the scene here mm-hmm. is there so is he is this purely a structural element to mark the passage of time for us for uh, for people that are in the house um or is it is there is there an you know to the from a literary reading is there something uh-huh. else going on there oh yeah yes. i think he's making that? i i do think he's making a statement about faith and the role of faith in society and i, I don't think it's a very strongly in favor statement throughout this play <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it's a different that, perspective than yes. Coulter on so many things. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And that, so I do think that the church bells also are an announcement of death. And I, I think that that's important here. He's asking the question, can I ever get out of this, this, this coffin, this, this mm-hmm. place is like a coffin to me. Like, I feel like I'm, doesn't he say even in the fight with his mother, 
he says how lucky dead people are. Like yeah, Ben mentions yeah. about how lucky dead people are. So, he so we have the church bells tolling. Yes. Sorry, and sorry. I do think there's, yeah, and I do also think there's the structural element. It works as a structural element. Now we have the scene within the scene. That was really important. Now we're moving on to back to Tom and Amanda. Hmm. So I think it serves both purposes. So yeah. in his imaginings, mm-hmm. the idea of, of, a, of rising from the dead is, is possible. Mm. Um, along with the other stuff that he talks about, but in not yeah, without in, destruction, re- though. That's the question. If I yeah. get out of this coffin, I'm going to destroy it. I can't get out mm-hmm. without removing the nails, right? I'm going to dismantle this home if I if I leave. Going back to Tim's point, that uh, this the question that he has to answer is, what do I choose between personal freedom and Laura? Hmm. Mm. So, and I think that that line, um, when we first hear that line, the bottom of 27, uh, you know, it don't take much intelligence to get yourself into a nailed up coffin, Laura, mm-hmm. but who in, who in hell ever got himself out of one without m- removing a nail? I think at that point, we, we don't know enough to know fully that he's talking about escaping from right that their apartment i think we because the opening monologue we know something you know we know that he's on his way out but we don't know exactly what the stakes are for him it's a line that comes into focus much more on a second reading very much so but even i think for the audience when they hear tom say that they know okay something is we're going into dangerous territory here and I don't know what it is. Well, but it also speaks to his longing, right? Like what is the thing that he wants? And it's bit by bit. It's helping us understand what is the thing that Tom as a character is, is after like, what is his, what is the purpose Mm -hmm. or, you know, that thing that you were talking about and he doesn't have to come right out and say it, but he came right out and say it and said it in a way. (laughs) That's where the subtlety Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. And it also reveals, it reveals us, it reveals to us a lot about him. It reveals like that he's a skeptic and, you know, he's longing mm-hmm. for something better, but doesn't think is really possible. And, um, but then what do you make of the line that immediately follows up the stage direction as if an answer, the father's grinning photograph lights up and the scene. Oh, man. Out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What oh does that gosh. mean? What's going on? Yeah. 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 What do you I think, mean, Heidi? Well, he says at the beginning, the, uh, our father is the fifth character in this play. And uh, I can't remember exactly what words he uses. So brilliant. I just, um, the other characters are my mother, Amanda, my sister, Laura, and a gentleman caller who appears in the final scenes. Mm. Um, And uh, and then he says, there's a fifth character in the play who doesn't appear except in this larger than life photograph over the mantle. This is our father who left us a long time ago. He was a telephone man who fell in love with long distances, which is a a line used twice in the play, so you know that's important. Mm -hmm. He gave up his job with the telephone company and skipped the light fantastic out of town. I think if I were to, you know, write a paper about this play, I would write it about how the father and the gentleman caller are the same character, (laughs) that they are haunting the apartment, This, this deep loss that characterizes mm-hmm. everything that that and that and yet also the expected return 
mm-hmm. but that because nobody comes, the job is left to Tom and he knows he's not sufficient to the task, mm-hmm. which I think is why the photograph is constantly um, emphasized in these scenes in which Tom is wrestling with his future. This is where I think, you know, you'd never have, you'd never describe that like in a novel, like you would never right. describe then the light, the picture lights up. Right. Huh, this is where it's right. the, the like sort of the artifice of the yes. play, no pun intended, shines through. And what, there's like four or five references just in these two pages to dim lights or lights that are not mm-hmm. fully bright. So the first um, in the alley, there's a faint light in the alley. And then the bells ring. Um, mm. He strikes a match because he he drops his key or whatever. So he can't. He's trying to. He's searching around. Like the, there's just enough light for him to see in the alley. He strikes a match to get just enough light to see to find his key that he drops. There's the shimmering rainbow or uh, rainbow colored scarf. That's a reference to light. Um, yes. Then there's the reference there. This that the the the, uh, the photograph lights up, but then the scene dims out. So it seems yeah. like there's always this constant like. In, in the artifice here, and I don't mean that in a negative way, in the artifice, there's this mm-hmm. constant put tug between light and darkness. And the, the most light that we can ever get is just barely enough, right? It's mm-hmm. like barely enough to get you through what you're, where you're trying to go or what you're trying to do. It's not enough to actually like light up the whole stage or to light up mm-hmm. the whole room or whatever. Um, huh. It's just barely enough. And I think that's where... Um, there's another example of his genius, right? He's he's making this thematic point through these very specific um, artificial means, and again, I don't mean that in a negative in a negative way. Like the artificial means that are the form of the stage, right? That of the stage right. play. So he's he's right. giving us this thematic thing through the limitations and structure of the specific art form that he's working in. If you're doing that in a novel, you do it in a different way. It doesn't make it worse. It just makes it, it's the unique language of writing, Mm -hmm. staging and performing a play. And well, and it would change the meaning if it was in a novel because you couldn't have the, to your point, this is, this is so good, David, to your point in a novel, you'd have, you'd have to have Tom look up at the photograph, right? Yeah. Right. Which which you'd, I mean, and then Tom looked up and gazed at his father, whatever, but that, that would, that would take some very deaf writing. Yes. Well, and it would undercut the whole point, which is Tom has no real idea that he's so haunted by his father. Mm. We as the audience know that, but Tom is just trying to make sense of this disordered life. Okay. So let me ask you a question. This is, do you think that the, that the picture lighting up is for the character in the moment or for the audience? I took it as for the audience. What do you think, Tim? Yeah, I agree. Okay, so did I. All right, I'm just... Yeah, okay. I, I, That's I, a great I, question. So, because you could read it as like... Um, I guess the question is, does the... If you were performing this, Tim, or you were directing it, would you have the characters notice that it lights up? Or is it the scenes ending and the audience are the ones who notice it? Is it... Is it I is would it like, not... Are we breaking the wall there? Mm-hmm. Uh... Like, is that something that is part of the scene or is it purely part of like the stagecraft, if you will? Oh, that, I think it's what part I'm of the stagecraft. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think so. I would not have Tom look at it just because I think it would be a little bit heavy handed. And I think it right. is, if we're taking it that it's primarily for the audience, 
mm-hmm. then I don't think we need Tom to look at it. I right. think that I think that's where when people who don't read a lot of plays like me, when you're when you're kind of settling into reading a play, like yeah. that um that sort of artifice can feel heavy handed until you realize that yeah. you're almost speaking different sort like you're speaking in different grammars in a way. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so you, yeah, yeah. it's the same language, but you're speaking like maybe a different dialect. And so you have to learn to speak the two different dialects um yeah. at the same time and pause and think about what's going on there. So then you're realizing, okay that's something that someone's going to see, not say. And there's a very big right. difference between what the audience sees and what the performer says. Um, hmm. Can I point out one other stage direction that occurs near here? Yeah. This is, that has, I think, it's a little bit less about the theme and it's a little bit more about establishing character. So for me at the bottom of 28, mm-hmm. um, about a page later, Laura rushes awkwardly for her coat. Now here's the line. Mm. The coat is one of Amanda's, inaccurately made over, the sleeves too short for Laura. Uh-huh. Like, I, I take that, if I saw that, if I saw Laura putting that on, maybe it's in a style that we've seen Amanda wear, but we've not seen Laura wear. And the sleeves are too short, which is not just about maybe Laura, I mean, it's not just about the length of her arms as compared to her mother's, it's about maybe like her mother in, you know, continuing to keep her as younger than she is. Mm, She's outgrown this coat. Huh? Right. Mm. I think that's good. And I had interpreted it as I love that. I thought that was a really cool touch. And I had interpreted it as Amanda not knowing anything about her kids. That's how I read it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, but both of those things work. Yeah, and they both communicate work. the same thing, right? But she's just missing them. Yeah. Hmm. Can I ask a question? Yeah. yeah. Do, do you guys, um, what do you think of Amanda, the mother? Mm-hmm. Such a good question. That's the, I mean, in many ways, that's the crux of the play. Yeah is what do you think about Amanda? Um, is she, you know, is, do we demonize her? Do we villainize her? Or is she just, as she says in her own words, I have, I'm so devoted to my kids that I have made myself a witch to them. Is yeah. it just that she's so overly devoted that she's just too controlling? Or is there something a little more diabolical going on? And I tend mm. toward the second. So I, I think she's, I don't demonize her. I get it. Mm-hmm. But I think there's something more than just devotion to her kids. Mm-hmm. Sure. If you were to venture a guess, Heidi, what would that be? Oh, fear, I think. She sees herself what? as the main character of her own story. That's her problem. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I think that's true. She sees herself as the main character in, in their story as well. She's, um, and uh, I yeah, see it yeah. with her. I think that's better. Yeah. And I think with her, I see a touch of Wuthering Heights of this desire to control the next generation for the failures that have happened in mine. That um, she can't escape talking about how great she was. Yes. Yes. And I, both of the, both of the, and this is just in my head, right? I had both of the performances that I saw this week played her completely differently than I 
had imagined her, which was hmm. interesting to me, and I'm still trying to make sense of this. I had imagined her as still beautiful and a bit seductive with her oh, children, yeah. especially with Tom. And um, with the, um, and neither of the performances played her like that. They played her as very hysterical and drab hmm. and like house coat and house shoe. And that is not at all how I picture her, which doesn't mean it's hmm. wrong, but I had her in mind as in a manipulative and seductive with this younger generation, uh, yeah. particularly with the gentleman caller, right? With Jim at the end. Yeah. She, she reminds me a lot of an O'Connor mom. Yes. Yes. I, kept so, I don't know. What did y'all think of her? Can I ask one follow-up question? Did, yeah. Did you guys, did you guys see the gentleman caller as kind of falling for her a little bit? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I read it as him taking, con hmm. I don't know if I read it quite like he was falling for her so much as he was, um, I, I read it more of like he was taking control. Huh. And he was, if he was falling for her, it was more like he was choosing to make it seem like he fell for her um, mm -hmm. because he was someone who like was, he did, he just, his, his sort of illusion was that he made other people feel better about themselves. And he mm -hmm. did that by being like charming and winning and like just what, however silly they act, he makes them feel better about himself. And like, that's the illusion that he sort of crafts and carries around with him because people then respond to him, you know, in the right mm. the way he wants them mm. to that's how i read it yeah. I, um yeah yeah i don't i don't know that, i mean i wouldn't say that he wasn't falling for her but it felt like he to me it felt like he sort of also saw through her in a way it was like manipulating huh. her i don't know i'd have to reread it again with that yeah huh. but what do y'all think of the mother i'm curious what you what your perspective <laughs> on her was well i, I want to i just want to read this the stage direction yeah. uh 62 this i think huh. This supports your point, Heidi. Um, so Tom and Jim are out on the veranda smoking and they're mm -hmm. talking. We've not seen, I don't think we've seen mother yet. Like mm -hmm. since the beginning of the, um, since the arrival of the gentleman caller. Yes. Um, yes. They start inside. So they is Tom and the gentleman caller. She advances to them. Tom is distinctly shocked at her appearance. Even Jim blinks a little. He is making his first contact with the girlish Southern vivacity, and in spite of the night school course in public speaking, is somewhat thrown off by the beam of the unexpected, off the beam by the unexpected outlay of social charm. Certain responses are attempted by Jim, but are swept aside by Amanda's gay laughter and chatter. Tom is embarrassed, but after the first shock, Jim reacts very warmly. He grins and chuckles, is altogether won over. I thought, I thought this was such a sensitive thing to include on behalf mm -hmm. of our playwright, because yeah. I do think that he, mm -hmm. I think the player is so closely identified with Tom, and mm -hmm. I think he has had such a brutally hard time with his mother, yes. and to write into the stage direction, to give her this, like, instead of continuing to make fun mm -hmm. of her recollections of having set 17 gentlemen callers in the deep South when she was growing up, he actually 
acknowledges and can see what a beautiful, vivacious woman his mother was. He can like see it for a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he gives her a moment of triumph. Yes. Yep. But it does come across her, like just that, even that scene. And maybe that stage direction is how I interpreted her the subsequent times that I read it. Cause I, is this, she's like bringing him into her collection. Uh huh. Right? It's collect, she's collecting him, trying to put him into the glass menagerie. Uh huh. Can, can I make a case? I mean, I don't yeah. disagree t- to this point in the play. I think that there's a shift though when scene seven starts because yes. the prayer at the end of scene six kind of begins to flip things. Um, and huh. even like where he's the line, Tom, the, the stage direction, Tom looks at her stupidly yeah. um, asking him to say grace. Uh. Like, there's a shift there and then the power goes out. So the last stage direction or the last line of the stage direction paragraph at the beginning of scene seven says a moment after the curtain rises, the lights in both rooms flicker and go out. And then Jim right. says, hey there, Mr. Lightbulb. And then Amanda laughs nervously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the power goes out, tell him I got to pay the bill and all that. And then Jim's in the know on why that is. And, you know, so uh-huh. like all of a sudden he has all the power on the stage. So, yes. so he knows what Amanda doesn't know. He, he knows what we know, which is not always true of most characters on the stage. And from that point on, he begins to sort of have control and be able to manipulate the other people and then of course you see when he gets in with laura he, right you know that he begins right. to definitely take over and his he just is charming just enough to make other people feel good about themselves and then you know pull the rug out right okay now i have i have another follow-up question i'm sorry i'm gonna i want to change this up just a little bit but maybe we should finish the thoughts about well we're running out of time so <laughs> yeah we are it's three it's uh three o'clock we've been going for an hour and a half almost so oh my goodness Wow, we need lots of time on this play. All right, we, go ahead, we do have next week, yeah. so we can cover some. Yes. Things. So let's let's um, I think we need to move towards a wrap up for this episode. Okay. The file is too big for people to download if we're not careful. Um, where do you say? What were you going to say? Let's see. Let's kind of. I was going to. I was going to ask. Do you think that Jim, the gentleman caller, could be played innocently? Hmm. Yeah, I think he's best played innocently because the point that he makes. Tennessee William makes over and over in describing him is that he's a nice, ordinary young man. He has no idea this like wallow of dysfunction that he has wandered into. No clue. Right. (laughs) So he's, and I think that works better thematically reading as a literary person, because then you have to David's point, that's brilliant. He has all the power because all these people want is the gentleman caller slash father to come and save them. Yeah. Right. So if he is unequal to that task, that makes the tragedy and pathos of the play much. Stronger. So you yeah. think he's genuinely trying to be kind to Laura? Or you could read, you could perform it that way. Wait, where are we at? I'm sorry. I missed that. Well, Cut out for a second. I just said, so you think that you could, you could rightly per- play Jim as actually trying to be kind to Laura. Uh, or just clueless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe not diabolical, like trying to, you know, he's not trying to destroy the unicorn. It's an accident. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I right? guess I don't, when I say that he's, wrestling yeah. power, I don't necessarily mean that he's being diabolical. I, um, right. I think that he has this, that there is something in his personhood that is right. just sort of manipulative, like manipulative because he's 
has the capacity to be charming. Like charming people sure. are in their worst, right? Like the worst kind of charming right. person, you know, <laughs> um, the mm-hmm. way they can be in those moments sometimes. And I, so right. I is he just trying like, to kiss a pretty girl from high school and feel like it's the tough guy again? Or is he like just trying to play her? Mm. Yeah. Like there's a difference between he's like, totally like trying to mess with her and right. her sad and then there's the like he's trying to actually make her happy but he doesn't realize that right what he's doing is actually not very healthy <laughs> um right exactly it's a good question i think it could go either way but i tended to think of him as just kind of a bumbling oaf <laughs> how, how yeah. does john malkovich play him well he's tom john malkovich oh that's right tom. that's right yeah yeah of course yeah yeah um I don't know that I thought too much about it in watching the performances, to be honest. I was thinking more about you, Laura. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. I never realized I didn't even pay attention to him. <laughs> David Great Malkovich plays him. Oh, I think, I think John Malkovich is like that role is, he is so terrific. As Tom. It's like, it's like, Mm-hmm. is Tom it's yeah. it, for me I don't know how you felt Heidi because I know that you watched it also it felt like he was dynamite and the fuse was always lit and you just mm-hmm. never knew when it was going to go off it could just go off at any second right and it yeah and it seemed like the oh I just think he was so wonderful and it it's like the only thing that kept him from just completely detonating was just this deep affection and a little bit of idealization for Laura. Mm -hmm. He just loves her. And Mm -hmm. I think he feels like his own innocence is bound up in protecting her in some way. Yes. Yes. It's the only thing that keeps him from just blowing the entire stage up. He has like so much masculine force in that performance. I just think, Mm. yeah, it kind of took your, it took my breath away a few times. Right. Really good. Yeah, it was magnificent. I agree completely. Hey, this is what I think we should do. Let's mm-hmm. we'll answer listener questions next week. Um, and but let's begin next week by talking about the unicorn because I don't think we have time okay. now to do it. To do it. Yeah, right. Time. That's great. So let's right. pause here. Um, we'll have a week long intermission, and then we will um, we'll start the next episode with a unicorn scene. So if somebody wants to just ask a question about the unicorn, we'll just address that first. Um, and then uh, <laughs> yeah. and then we can um, continue on with the listener questions, which I assume we'll touch on a lot of things that we want to talk about anyway. So um, we will, I'll go ahead and post a, uh, a thread or whatever on Facebook, the Facebook group page, and people can leave their comments there. And if you want to just email me, you can also email me your questions at david at circeinstitute.org for those of you who are not on Facebook. And uh, speaking of not being on Facebook, another thing we have done is we have started the Close Reads um, the Close Reads podcast newsletter. So if you um, want to get access to that, I'm going to post in the description for this episode, I will post the, uh, the link to where you can sign up for that. So that'll be on the website description and on the iTunes or Stitcher description or wherever that is. So if you want to get that, we'll send that out every couple of weeks, once a month at least, with a list of the books that are coming up some bonus, you know, we'll look some bonus articles and things like that. Um, and maybe some thoughts from one of us on occasion as well. So that's going to be, a another way to, to get uh, close reads content. Um, and, uh, hope you guys will all enjoy that, especially those of you who are not on Facebook and just don't get as easy access to all the different information that's getting posted there. So, um, again, I'll post that in the description. 
All right. Um, quickly, you, 30 second final thoughts from either of you or are you, are you good for this week? No, I'm, I'm good. This week. Yeah, All right. No more. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll, again, we'll talk about, we'll dive right in next week for another, what I assume will be lengthy episode. So, um, Thanks to everyone who's been reading along with us. Thanks to Augustan College in the U.S. for sponsoring this week. Remember, you can learn more about them at truthisbeautiful.org. And uh, for Heidi White, for uh, Tim McIntosh, and for Angelina Sanford, who's out in Montana, I am David Kern saying farewell, happy reading, and we'll talk to you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.